Christmas. It's so uh, good to be together. I am, I am so glad that you all decided to come and to, to worship together this morning. And, and for my part, there's no place I would rather be than right here with you this morning. Uh, in fact, I'm going to go so far as to say I wish that every Christmas we would gather and worship. Uh, I mean, what is it that we're celebrating today? Well, we know it, right? We all know the story. We all know exactly why we're here. We know that, that God became man. We know that the Word became flesh. We've talked about how this, this is uh, uh, going to lead us all the way to the cross where Jesus deals with our sin problem and we are fully forgiven. The wrath of God is paid for. And then, you know, Jesus comes back to life. And I say it so casually, right? So casual. But just, just let's do something. Let's just pause for a moment. I want you to think about these very well-known truths that we all know. And, and my prayer right now is, as we just very slowly reflect on them before I read this morning's preaching text, is that the Holy Spirit would rekindle the awe of what it is we're gathered here to proclaim. And it's not just us. Uh, all across the world today, millions and millions, I don't even know how many, uh, but I can, I can easily say millions and millions, and that hopefully is up in the hundreds of millions, hundreds and hundreds of millions, maybe even a billion, I don't know, but men, women, and children all over the world who have been gathered together, sometimes through much danger, in difficulty, and gathered together like we are right here to say, today is Christmas. Today is the day that we celebrate a, an amazing thing that God has done. And what is that thing? I'm going to say it a couple of ways, and let me just pray, just a short prayer, inviting the Holy Spirit, you pray with me, that these common truths, common truths, truths that are common to us, would be awe-inspiring again. Oh, Holy Spirit, awaken in us the embers of, of faith that we may hear what we've heard so many times before and be, be struck by how amazing it is that you have done this thing. We pray this in Jesus' name. What do we celebrate on Christmas? We celebrate that God... God, uh, the one who has always been and will always be, you know, God. No one created God. No one can destroy God. God, God who is his, in himself life. There's no death or darkness in him. Nobody can steal from him, rob from him. God, the one who needs no one or nothing, the one who is completely self-determined, God. Okay, just so we all know who we're talking about. God, before he created anything or anyone outside of himself, and he didn't create himself, he always was, he said, if I'm going to do this thing, if I'm going to create a, a universe, if I'm going to create creatures, I want them to share in all that I am and all that I have to give, okay? And in order to do that, I'm going to become one of them. God became one of us. Now this is where you, you invite the Holy Spirit to just blow your mind. God became one of us. So that I can actually say, this is a theological truth, um, God is a man. 
God is a man. And, and, and this, this decision that God made, at Christmas we, we celebrate that God forever bonded himself to humanity. Forever. Uh, Jesus never stops being human. He never stops being a man. After, after we killed him, put him in the grave, he, he just said, well, you think that's going to hold me back? I'm God. I am life. You can't, you can't bury me. And so he, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the will of the Father, the Son of God, who is fully God, just got up one day in glory. And he's still a man. He appeared to his disciples for 40 days. Then he ascended up into heaven. And he's still a man in heaven. He never, his humanity never evaporated from him. So we can say that at Christmas, what we celebrate is that God is a man. Now, the Father is not a man. The Spirit is not a man. But the Son is a man. He's still a man. He's somewhere between, I said this uh, before, I don't know if to you or to someone else, but I, how big is this man who is God? Well, he's somewhere between five and seven feet tall. About, about my height. And he's in heaven. And he's coming back. It's just so amazing. One of my uh, friends, one of my favorite preachers, God has just so gifted him, Steve West. He's at Crestwick Baptist Church in Guelph. And he has this ability of taking these common truths. I call them common truths. I'm not, I don't mean to demean them at all. These are just amazing truths that we have made common. And, and he's able to turn them just a little bit so that, so that we can see what we've already seen before, but it's like we're seeing it for the first time. And I'm not going to pretend to be able to do what he did, but I just want to repeat something that he said uh, one time at NBC that just struck me. And I, I don't have his personality or his delivery, so... It's not going to come off the same way, but by God's grace, it might strike you the way it struck me. He's like, okay, just picture yourself on Christmas morning. You, you've got your stocking, and you're reaching in your stocking. Eric, you pull something out, and you unwrap it. Oh, it's a tennis ball. That's really good. Thank you. You pull it. You put your arm in your stocking. You bring it. Oh, it's $10 to Tim Hortons. That's really nice. Really nice. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and then you reach in your stocking. You pull it out. Death defeated. And then everything else just pales in comparison. Death defeated. Has anyone here ever been afraid of death? I've been afraid of death. It's coming for us all. So at Christmas, the gift that God gives us is death defeated? Death defeated? And yet we shallow out Christmas. But just such glorious truths. And I'm so glad that we're gathered together so that we can celebrate that we can worship God, there's no place I'd rather be. I want to read for you today's preaching text. It's in Luke chapter 2. It's the Christmas narrative. Uh, we've been working our way through Luke chapter 1. And Luke chapter 1 is, is preparing us for this moment. So would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2? As you're finding your spot, would you please stand? Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius, Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. 
because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised... He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this piece of history that you've preserved in the gospel of Luke. Now as we look into it, I pray that your Christmas gift to us would be eyes to see and hearts to welcome afresh the King of glory who was born some. 2,000 years ago in a land far away. Pray that you would help us to know who he is and what he has done and to share that with others. Would your grace be upon us? Would your grace be upon me? Help me to speak your words faithfully. Build up this church and glorify yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I mean, much can be said about this preaching text. This preaching text could be a preaching ser a series, right? You could take one aspect and turn each aspect into a full sermon. So, so we're going to go over it and we're going to look at some broad things. I mean, we could talk about Caesar Augustus and the fact that this is not a myth. This is not a fable. This happened in real time and space. When? Well, when Augustus Caesar called everyone together to be counted so that they could be taxed. We could talk about Joseph, as we have in the past already here at South Shore, uh, since I arrived, and how he was uh, the son of David, and so he went to Bethlehem, the city of David. We could talk about how there was no room in the inn. Here it is, God, who created everything and everyone, and there was no room for him here. Nobody wanted him. Everybody shut him out, so he was born in a backwater stable, laid in a manger, we talk about the shepherds, and we will, but what I really want to focus in on are the angels. You know, angels, as much as we think about angels, they don't show up that much in the Bible. 
Only at very important times. And, and never like this. A great multitude of angels. Heaven just opened and, and all of these angels, too many to count, descended upon the plains where the shepherds were. And, and they sang that beautiful hymn, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. I want to look at the angels today and that's verses 10 through 14. And we're going to look at, at, at the things that the angels said because it captures really everything in this preaching text. There's going to be six lines in the things that they said. Line one, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Line two, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Line three, and the Savior is Christ the Lord. Line four, you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Line five, glory to God in the highest. Line six, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So I'll occupy the rest of our time this Christmas morning just going through these six lines. Uh, very economical with their words, aren't they? Here, here heaven opens, the angels come down. You might hope that they would have said more, that, uh, that Luke, if they did say more, would have recorded more of what they said. But these are the six lines that we get from that first Christmas that the angels, these ambassadors from heaven to earth, shared with the angels. Line one, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. I mean, th this should be the banner on our hearts as Christians. I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. We are to go out into the world as ministers of reconciliation to bring good news of, of great joy to all the people. And I wonder sometimes if, if we come off that way to our unbelieving family and friends. Do, are we emissaries of good news of great joy? Or are we the ones who killed the party? Are we the great joy kills of this world? I mean, the angels didn't come to, 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 to be a great joy kill. They said, look, don't be afraid. You don't have to fall down in front of me. I, I'm not here to threaten you. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to dampen your spirits. I'm here to give you great good, good news of great joy. I, I want you to celebrate. I want you to be happy. Uh, we should be the most joy-filled people people in the world, and when we go into the world with the gospel on our lips, when we go out with the gospel in our actions, when, when the love that we have given to us, deposited by God, overflows from our heart for, for all of the world, what they should say is, wow, there is, there is a group of people filled with great joy. I want to know what gives them that joy, and then we can give them the good news. That's what the gospel is, you know. The gospel is good news. That's, I bring you euangelion. We translate it gospel, but it, it's also good news. The gospel is good news. Why is it then that so many people think that we are delivering bad news? You know, it's true. Blessed are they who persecute you for my sake, says Jesus. That's true. But we are not blessed if we are being persecuted because of ourselves. I, I hope that we're being persecuted because we bring blessing. We bring joy. We bring, we bring good news. And, and if somebody wants to persecute us because we, we want to show them how to have eternal life, if, if somebody wants to hate us because we say, we, you can have this joy too. You, you can be freed from your sin. 
You don't have to die, and death doesn't have to have the last word. You can die in hope. If that is why we're being persecuted, then God bless us. But if we are being persecuted because we are coming in with bad news, then we've missed the point somehow, somewhere along the way. The gospel is grounds for great joy. And my question for all of us then is, does our faith in Christ result in great joy? Because if it doesn't, something's wrong. And it doesn't mean that you're not saved, but something is wrong. We need to realign ourselves. And I'll just be honest with you. My wife and I have gone through seasons of life where we are not feeling any joy at all. Now, I'm not saying that we have to always be happy. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. Joy is not happiness. It's not circumstantial. But no matter what's happening in your life, underneath that is there a fountain of joy that enables you to sing praises to God in the darkest moments, circumstantially, of your life. And, and it's not good to wait for those dark moments to see if it's there. We need to be cultivating that great joy so that when it comes, uh, the world can find us singing and rejoicing. When you find out you have terminal cancer, uh, that's not the time to ask yourself, do I have great joy? Do I have great hope? Have I embraced the good news? That's the time for, for, for showing the world that, wow, that joy was real. My wife and I, we had to be realigned at certain times along our Christian walk. And I would go so far as to say that that's probably normative. That just because we're saved, when we're saved, we're born again as infants in Christ. We've got to grow up. And just like any infant conceived, as a child grows into maturity, there's a lot of realignment that needs to take place, right? As we grow up in Christ, we need to constantly be looking for opportunities for realignment. If you're not experiencing a deep-seated joy, seek it. And we need to seek it together with one another for one another. The gospel, we also hear, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Is the gospel for every single individual? No, not every single individual will receive the gospel in a saving way. Uh, but what the angel is saying is that this gospel of great joy is for all kinds of people. For Jew and Gentile, for rich and poor, for male and female. Every kind of person out there, the gospel is for them. And so we go out with the gospel on our lips with great joy in our hearts to all kinds of people. And God has gifted us each differently to reach a different kind of person. And, and you may not be the person that can reach your unsafe family. Try. But know when, know when to pray for God to bring someone else into their life. To be the one through which God will open their eyes. That's line one. Better keep moving if we're going to get through six lines. The angels were economical in their words, I am not so much. Line two, what, what, why, why is there this good news? What is the reason for joy for all people? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Now who are the angels talking to at this point? Unto you, unto you is born this day. 
Unto who? Unto you shepherds. Why shepherds? Have you ever stopped to ask that? Why, why shepherds? Shepherds, I, I think this is fairly well known. They were, at the time that Jesus was were born, it was a legitimate profession, but it was also socially near the bottom of the social ladder. So at the top, if you're a Pharisee, a priest or a scribe, that's at the top. At the bottom, you've got shepherds. They were outcasts. They, they often did things that made them ceremonially unclean. So they couldn't go to the temple the way everyone else could go to the temple. Uh, in fact, they were, they were known to be unreliable. They were, they were unable to testify in court. Now that's interesting, isn't it? They were unable to testify in court. Oh, you're a shepherd. You don't qualify to testify in court. And so who does God go to to be his primary witnesses? Those who, whom the society in which they live said, you're, you're not trustworthy as witnesses. So God says, all right, you un, unworthy, untrustworthy witnesses, I want you to be my witnesses of the greatest moment in, in human history to that point. I'd like to take it a little bit further. I think it goes beyond just the, the social realm of the shepherds. I, I think that the motif of shepherd is such an important motif. A, a motif is just a pattern that repeats itself in any kind of literature. So in the Bible, it's literature, so there's motifs that repeat themselves. And this idea of the shepherd gets repeated over and over. You think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, right, right. Uh, God called the kings over Judah and Jerusalem, the shepherds over his people. The, the priests were supposed to be shepherds. You have David who was a shepherd. You had Moses who was a shepherd. So God seems to love shepherds, and, and there's a reason for that. If you go to Ezekiel 34, and we're not opening there, but pull on this string sometime. That's, that's the thing I like to say. It's, it's a strand that you just pull on it. Whoa, there's something to this. So you just keep pulling on it, and all of a sudden things open up in the Bible for you to understand. So Ezekiel 34, go there uh, at some point this, this Christmas season. And in Ezekiel 34, God is just blasting the shepherds of Israel. And he's talking about the kings, the royal house. He's talking about the priests and those who are supposed to look after the people. And God says, you haven't been feeding my sheep. He says, so I'm going to have to come myself to be the good shepherd over my people. So when Jesus, later in his life, says, I'm the good shepherd, he's really thinking about Ezekiel 34. And so it's fitting that the good shepherd says, I, I want some within my guild to come and to, to bear witness to my birth. And then there's that other thing, what John the Baptist would later say, right? Well, the very first time John lays eyes on, on Jesus, even though they're cousins, they met while they were each in the womb. John looks at Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God. Who's normally present when lambs are born? Shepherds. So I, I just throw that out. You know, pick it apart. See, see what part of that you think is interesting. But I think all of that is happening uh, when God goes to the shepherds. We also see here, unto you a son is given. We see that Isaiah 9 is fulfilled. We've read this quite a few times, right? They who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Unto you a son is given. Unto you a child 
is born. And, and this is that Davidic king that, that the prophet Isaiah promised. He is the savior of the world. I don't know if, if the shepherds would have been familiar with Isaiah's prophecy. I imagine they probably were, but I don't know. But when they hear the, the angel saying, unto you a, a, a child is given, go and see him. I wonder if they were thinking about Isaiah chapter 9. That's line 2. Line 3. This child is Christ the Lord. This child that you're going to see is Christ the Lord. It's definitive. It's, it's clear. What I love about this is we have here the humanity and the divinity of Jesus so simply articulated. Christ that's the Greek word for Messiah. Uh, the expectation in the Old Testament was always that the Messiah would be a man. He was going to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. You're going to go and you're going to meet the Christ, the Messiah. There's no question that they're going to meet a baby boy, a human being, a man child. So we see there the, this promise of, of a son to the human race who shares fully in what it means to be human. So, so Jesus had a human body. We know that. He had, he had a human soul and still does. A human mind and emotions and he still does. A human will as well as a divine will. He's fully human. Everything that makes you and me human, he is. He is our Christ. He is our Messiah. He is our representative. Uh, in Daniel, the Christ is called the Son of Man, just to make the point. He's the Son of Men. He is our suffering servant, even while he is our anointed king. But he is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. We don't know what language the angels were speaking. Luke is writing in Greek. In the Old Testament, when it was translated into Greek, the Greek word kurios was the word used for Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of God. I imagine that the way that the shepherds heard this was, I want you to go and to meet your Messiah, Yahweh. I want you to go meet your Messiah, Yahweh. This child is fully God. Fully God. Even while he is fully man. That's line three. This child is Christ, the Lord. Line four. You will find the baby, this Messiah, Yahweh, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. I like that swaddling clause. Well, what else would he be dressed in? Well, here we have God. He's wrapped in human flesh, and around that human flesh is swaddling cloths. So that's just, that's just helpful, you know. This baby, he's wrapped in swaddling cloths. It's helped you to identify him. He's a newborn, in other words. This is what you wrap newborns in. He's not, not a toddler. He's not a week old. He's, he's minutes old. That's what that's all about. Then you'll find him in a manger. Do you know what a manger is? You know, I, I, to my embarrassment, I was like 25 before I knew what a manger was. I, th I thought a manger was a stable. But then, but as a Canadian, I should know what a manger is. A man manger. 
It's a feeding trough. It's where you put the food for the animals. I should have known that. I, I can't believe I just admitted that I thought that the manger was a stable. But anyway, in, in case anyone else is with me, it, it's a feeding trough. It's where you put the bread for the animals. Now, this manger is in a particular city. It's the city of David. What's the name of the city of David? Bethlehem. Beth, house, lehem, bread. Bethlehem. Jesus was born in a city called the house of bread, and then he was put in a feeding trough. What's the point? I mean, God likes to make his points with, with the smallest of details, right? Bethlehem, feeding trough. Jesus is the bread of life. That, that's the point. There's a great theological point that, that God makes through these, these historical details. Uh, there you'll find the bread of life in the house of bread in a feeding trough. Go and eat. Go and eat. Now, I want to say something to you that's very very profound, I think. It's not my idea, so I can say that it is profound. We have a tendency in the church to uh, say there's physical reality and there's spiritual reality. There's some truth to that. There's physical reality, there's spiritual reality. I find that dangerous, though. It's not that I deny it, that's true. But we say, well, Jesus is spiritual food, not physical food. I know what we're trying to do there. We're, we're trying to prevent ourselves from being cannibals. We don't, we don't want to say that you actually have to physically eat Jesus and, and turn his body into physical food. I, I understand that, and that's, that's good. I, I stand by that. But Jesus himself said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part with me. What's he, what's he saying? Well, if I was preaching that text, I'd say, well, okay, he's being... Um, He's being uh, superfluous, or he's, he's trying to exaggerate the point. But that's not exactly true either. We do have to do some eating. And, and that eating is for our physical benefit. So, now we don't eat Jesus. I understand that. We believe in Jesus. So our spiritual act of eating is faith. But, and this is where I think the physical, spiritual breaks down. Do you know that faith in Jesus has more physical good for us than eating anything that we eat physically? If I eat turkey tonight, which I think I'm going to, I'll eat it, and it'll keep my body going for what? Eight hours? Maybe longer. But then I'll be hungry again. But do you know when I put my faith in Jesus Christ... Physically, the benefit to me is resurrection bodily, physically from the dead. So, so when you eat Christ by faith, there's a physical benefit. And, and so is it spiritual eating? It is. But that, that spiritual benefit is physical. And so we always pull apart the physical and the spiritual. But what I want to say is that the spiritual is always joined to the physical. So that when we eat the bread of life by faith, the promise is that faith that we have will sustain our bodies, not for eight hours, but forever. So we'll never have to eat again. We will eat. I mean, the Bible's full of promises of feasting in heaven. But, but the, the eating there turns into sanctified gluttony. And that's important to put the sanctified in front of it. 
It's sanctified gluttony, uh, divinely ordained feasting. But the eating is not to sustain our physical bodies because our physical bodies are fueled and strengthened with the glory of God physically by faith. Isn't that amazing? So lying in the, the, the house of bread in the feeding trough is the bread of life. Eat him by faith and live physically forever. That is line four. Line five. Suddenly a great multitude of angels show up. And together this great chorus of angels sing, Glory to God in the highest. Now what does that mean? That we ought to glorify God in the highest? We ought to give him highest praise or that he is in the highest place? I, I think probably both. But, but more, uh, more likely it's that we give glory to God who resides in heaven. We glorify God in heaven. But then we add to that, of all the things that God has done, even in heaven, this is the greatest thing that he has ever achieved. The greatest thing that God ever achieved was becoming a man in the person of his son. God became a man. Infinite creator joined with his finite creatures. The almighty became helpless. The alpha and omega personally punctured time and space. The word became flesh. The one who said, let there be light, cried out into the dark, cold Bethlehem night with words that made no sense. The one who made covenants and promises with his people had come to fulfill them. Glory to God in the highest. The old covenant was coming to an end. The new covenant would be written in the blood of God incarnate. Glory to God in the highest. Finally, line six. And on earth. So you have glory to God in heaven, in the highest, and on earth. And imagine everything in between. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus was born to bring peace. What does that mean? What kind of peace? It's not, not an inner feeling, this peace of lack of anxiety or stress. That's not the peace that Jesus brings. He brings peace with God. I want you to think about this. We fear nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are, are like a matchstick compared to the power of God. And when we, are, when we are caught, when we're dead in our trespasses and sin, we are at war with God and we have declared him to be our enemy. And if we're at war with God, if God ever fights, that's the end of us. Jesus came to offer amnesty. He came to offer reconciliation. He came to offer terms of peace. And, and this is how God wrote the peace treaty. This is what I want to do for you who hate me. This is what I want to do for you who, who wage war against me. This is what I want to do for you rebellious, hateful sinners. I want to kill my son. And in his blood, write a treaty of peace with you. Will you take it? Will you take it? That's some God. Some God. Forgiveness for all our sins. 
Just think of it in this war uh, uh, metaphor. And it's more than a metaphor. It's a reality. But just think of it in the terms of war with God. Forgiveness is, you know, I'm going to forgive you for declaring war on me. And not only that, I'm going to adopt you into my family. And not only that, I'm going to make you a citizen of my kingdom. I'm going to restore you to fullness. I'm going to give you full shalom in your being. I'm going to give you eternal life. I'm going to adopt you and call you my own. Is this peace for everyone? It's nice to go out at Christmas time and say, peace on earth. But it's peace only with those with whom God is pleased. And God is the one who chooses according to his will uh, who he will be pleased with. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Was Jacob better than Esau? No. God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. Uh, I will have compassion on whom I choose to have compassion. But we go out into the world not knowing who God has chosen. We go out into the world with confidence that we are going to be ministers of reconciliation. We're going to say there's peace available. And those whom God has chosen will say, yes, I want that. I want that. I want that peace. And so, so we are actually, uh, when we believe in election, we believe in what God has done for us, and we believe in his sovereign will, we go out into the world and we say, we, we, we go into the world believing that God will save some, and we're going to declare this reconciliation, this peace with those whom God is pleased. And those with whom God is pleased, they will take the gift. And so this spurs us on in our evangelism. It spurs us on to be ministers of reconciliation. And I heard it said uh, recently, you have to always share the gospel believing that the choices of those people matter. And you leave knowing that ultimately God is sovereign and in control. So in the moment, you, you have to say, God, you, help me to articulate this. And you plead with the people and you say, look at this good gift. And you, you lay it out for them and you help them to understand and use all the words at your disposal. And, and, and you say, just accept this free gift. But when you leave, you leave it in the hands of God. Peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. After six weeks in Luke 1, we finally come to Christmas morning. John has been born. We've talked about it. He was promised to an old barren couple who represented the old covenant. And he leaped for joy in the womb of his mother that the old covenant was coming to an end, that the Messiah, the one who would write the new covenant in his own blood, was there in the womb of his mother. At Christmas, we celebrate the end of the old and the beginning of the new. And now Jesus has been born. He was promised. He was conceived in a virgin by the Holy Spirit. His name means the Lord saves. He has come and the Lord does save. And so begins the most historic life that was ever lived. So fear not. For behold, I bring you good news. Not bad news. Good news of great joy. That will be for all the people, all kinds of people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Who is Christ. Messiah. Man. The Lord, Yahweh, God himself. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this Christmas message. We thank you that you have offered us peace. Peace. Now help us to walk in that peace with great joy for the good news of the birth of our Messiah. 
who's one of us, even while he is one with you. Now, Lord, as we go out to share the gospel with others, may they see in us great joy. And may they hear from us good news. And if they persecute us, may it be because they have rejected your offer of peace, your offer of amnesty and reconciliation and forgiveness and adoption and citizenship. Let it be because they're rejecting you, not because we give them reason to reject us. Lord, may we be filled this day with all the joy and the blessings of Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.